Hey, everybody, it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, and I'm going to start today's show with a question I don't think I've ever asked an interviewee before. Eugene? Yes, sir. You think you could take me? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I'm a gentleman. I'm a gentleman. You know, I. Uh, and you're wearing a tie. And I'm wearing a suit and a tie, <laughs> and, and even pants today uh, as a, a departure from my usual outfit. But you know, it is like if you read the fight book, it is a calculation that I think I think most men over the age of forty make it super fast. They don't. I mean, when you're like nine years old, or ten, or twelve, or fifteen, you're still kind of trying to figure out. You know, there's a certain point when you get old enough, you go, ah, oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> and my I have a friend, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, and he walks down the street in New York, and it's a steady running tally for him. He goes, ah, that guy would give me some trouble. Ah, nah, nah, that guy's all right. You know, I mean, he's thinking this as he's walking down the street, you know. So it's something that maybe men will not admit to doing, but we all know we do it. Well, in our case, it would not be fair because I have um, studied, I may say, the uh, dark art of slap, grab, and twist. Oh, you've actually read the book. <laughs> and the book, by the way, yeah. is Fight. Everything you ever want to know about asking, but we're afraid to get your asking for asking. By my guest, who I haven't introduced yet, Eugene S. Robinson, the S standing for... Stanley. Stanley? Yeah. Not Sugar Ray. <laughs> no, <laughs> not with my parents, no. <laughs> my grandfather was a boxing fan, not, not my, neither my mother nor my father are fight fans. But they were, would describe themselves as, or at least my mother would, as bohemians, as hippies. I mean, it was the age of Aquarius. And I think at one point my mother very distinctly said, only angry people fight. And I was like, yeah, they fight guys like me, <laughs> you know, so I need karate lessons and, uh, yeah, she would let me get started for a bit, but when they started to put the touch on you for the money, she was like, you don't, you don't need this. You know, you just talk your way out of, I can't do that, Ma. I said, well, then you can run. Then, then I end up tired and beaten. So uh, the realities of life in Brooklyn in the 1970s were kind of lost on an adult. <laughs> and so Eugene became not just a fighter, but also a writer, a crooner, an actor. Yep. Nearly Mr. Teen Bensonhurst. That's right. Is that true? That's true. Runner-up in yeah. Mr. Teen ben Bensonhurst. A, a competitive bodybuilder. <laughs> <laughs> and a tango dancer. Tango dancer. A father. Uh, uh, multiple. Yeah, three, three, three kids. Three kids and a cat owner. Uh, cats and dogs. Cats and dogs. Yeah, yeah. You first came to my attention through um, some of your video rants on uh, my favorite MMA, that is for you public radio listeners, Mixed Martial Arts, uh, website. And in one of these rants, I can hear a cat meowing in the background. That cat is deaf. Okay. So he has no idea how loud he's, he's, he's mewling, and it's really <laughs> loud. But you can't holler at him to be quiet because he can't hear you. But it undercuts your ferocity, Eugenia. A snarling pit bull seems like the right accoutrement for you. Well, no. If you watch, watch enough of the show, you, you'll see that Popeye, the American bulldog, uh, the 90-pound American bulldog, makes an appearance periodically. Ah, that's he's, more like it. He's presently on strike because, of, you know, he, he was unhappy with the terms of his uh, video engagement. But he makes an appearance quite a bit. So that's, you know, you see Popeye and you go, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> and he's probably named after Popeye Doyle. Good for you. Good for you. Get away from the bar. Get up against the wall. Popeye's here. <laughs> and, the, and the cartoon character. I had some affinity for him as well. I know you're a movie buff. Yes. You got good taste, too. I mean, in your book, the one we talked about a moment ago, Fight. Yep. Everything you ever want to know about asking, but afraid you get asking for asking. <laughs> it's tough. Kid Nate can never get it right. Yeah. You would ref reference uh, Night in the City, a great uh, film noir from the early 50s. Made by Jules Dassin. Yeah, that's right. Oh, God. And I remember that movie. And I remember... Um, Widmar. 
Widmark, yes, as kind of a punk, a great, great acting yep. job. Yep. But it was nice to see someone call out a movie by Dessin. Yeah. Great yeah. filmmaker. He, he, he was blacklisted, I believe. Yes, I think he, he had, was. Had a terrible time. Went to France. Yep. And then he made Rafifi, which is one of the yes. greatest films ever. <laughs> oh, man. That opening sequence is just, ah, it's really phenomenal. You should really, yeah, see it if you can. I, I, I'm glad you know that. That's a great movie. So, Well, yeah. there are all these now deceased um, people who are on my all-time wish list of interviewees, and, and Jules Descent was one of them. Well, I'll, I'll add a name, and I'm, it's probably on your list already, but the guy who directed The Servant, oh, my God. Not Pinter. No, Pinter wrote the screenplay. Wrote the, yes. Um, and Dirk Bogard had to take over because a guy got yeah. sick, and now I'm blanking on it. Oh, who was it? Um, also blacklisted. Oh, yes, Lucy. Yeah, Joseph Lucy. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> Listen that to was gonna, us, That man. was going to panic me because I'm a, this is my favorite movie of all time. Yeah, it's a, great movie. it's a great movie. Great movie. Yeah, so. Damn, we could spend the whole hour not talking about your life, but just movies. Yeah, see, untold depth. You did not know this. <laughs> Well, let's talk about you. How did you become um, a kind of pugilist, a fighter? Uh, you grew up in uh, Brooklyn. I know that. Right. In the 70s. Yeah. A tough time. Yeah, it was, it was a, a weird time. Guys were getting back from Vietnam and, you know, I mean, now we call it post-traumatic stress. Did not have a name for it back then. So cats were coming back um, and with weird drug problems they did not have when they were there. You know, easy accessibility, things like heroin. So it was, a, you know... Look at Panic in Needle Park with Al Pacino. Mm -hmm. You want to go back to movies. Suddenly there was this kind of problem in the city. But it wasn't so much that um, that I lived in bad neighborhoods because I didn't particularly live in bad neighborhoods. I mean, I had a pretty straight, strict middle-class upbringing, you know. But New York was New York. And it was still, you know, this was the right before Reagan said, drop dead to New York. And I mean, mm. it was under John Lindsay was the mayor at the time. And it was a pretty chaotic time all around. But the reality of it was, um, before uh, Eaton Pates, you know, most kids in New York had re really pretty relatively free reign to go wherever. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. this put you in contact with... Uh, and Eaton Pates was a, a child who was murdered. A yeah. child who was murdered yeah. in Soho, down right. now, you know, super gentrified solo, Soho. Um, and they only recently, like, didn't they recently, like... Uh, the case is still coming up. They've got oh, a guy. They've got two the guys... Guy, yeah. One guy, they, it's it's a very strangely convoluted uh -huh. case, but what made that really noticeable, you know, kids did have free reign. Right. In the context of today, if you were to tell the average parent, all right, you know, it's probably okay for your six-year-old to walk three blocks to the bus stop by himself, <laughs> you, you, you know, they would call CPS Absolutely, on you. This yeah. is crazy. Yeah. And this is, but those days, no. So you had a relatively free reign, and it put you into contact with people who were different from the people on your block, who, you know, who you could figure out pretty quickly. And I was always a, um, I didn't like the stink of fear. I really don't. I, I mean, my whole life has been a testament, both intellectually and physically, of living beyond that kind of fear. I don't, don't want to do it. I'm perfectly okay with getting beaten up, but I don't want to be afraid about getting beaten up. <laughs> so uh, the early stages. And then, you know, your parents would say, here's a, a $3 to go to the movies. So the movies at the time, you know, we knee deep in Five Fingers of Death was the first one. <laughs> I saw, and then Enter the Dragon. And then, of course, there was a whole martial arts insanity. Mm -hmm. It was a pretty clear connection between being able to defend yourself and what was happening in these movies. So. Yeah. So you plunged in, uh, studying mm -hmm. one thing after another? I uh, started, I think the first thing I started with was Shotokan Karate. 
man, my stepfather had taken some karate at then at that point too. So I thought that was the thing. And I did that on and off for about a year. And I started lifting weights around the same time. So this was the point at which I was obviously building a carapace against the outside mm. world. At what point did that turn into real practical skill that you were able to use? Uh, I spent a lot of time getting beaten up pretty <laughs> much until... Going into a karate crouch and then having some guy slug you. <laughs> no, no, I didn't, do, I didn't do any of that. I mean, it was more, I mean, it was New York style. Like, you know, you hit a guy and a guy runs off. You go, oh, I showed him. And then he's got seven <laughs> friends. Yeah. And you're like, okay, <laughs> tactical error. So, um, no, I, I didn't start winning street scuffles until maybe I was about 19. And that's when the guy turned. And uh, probably at 19, I was at a body weight of about 180. So I was fast enough, strong enough, and knew just enough to be able to actually defend myself. So, um, And by that time, were you pissed off from other guys messing with you? No. I mean, New York, it was, it was a weird time. I, I, I was trying to explain it to somebody while I was walking down the street with them, a non-New Yorker, and I said, this is the only city in the world that I know that you can get into a fist fight. Just, and just as I say that, some guy walks by us and says, you know, what the hell are you laughing at? <laughs> I go, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, I was in Glasgow, and I, and I almost oh, yeah. got into a fist That's fight. That's a rough town. That's a rough town yeah. in a vegetarian restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sitting with um, my, uh, our, my, our tour managers. I see him looking at some guy across the room. Our tour manager is Swiss. So the look that he's delivering is completely placid. He's just kind of looking at a guy who's looking at him. But the guy that he, he does, he can't even see that the guy who's looking back at him is full of this kind of hostile menace thing. And so maybe I, a little bit of uh, alcohol, some kind or another, too. It, it was early. Well, I, I guess it doesn't matter <laughs> in Glasgow, Glasgow, you know. So then I kind of go sit next to the, the, the tour manager and I start looking at the guy and the guy's looking at me. And then finally he decides to break the contact. He goes, how you doing? I go, fine. How are you? He goes, just fine. I go, good. Glad to hear it. He goes, enjoying the city? I go, as much as humanly possible. And on the outside, if you didn't, <laughs> weren't looking at us, if you were to read the script of the transcript of the conversation, it seemed perfectly nice. But there was this sizing up thing that was happening. And then we both stood up. And so we're both standing up, exchanging these niceties across the room. And then at a certain point, he goes, well, is that it? I go, if that's all you got. <laughs> and so we look at each other. And we sit back down, and we go back to our vegetarian meal. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. Now, that doesn't happen to me. Um, and I've been to places like Glasgow and mm -hmm. other tough places. Mm. And I think it's because I don't threaten anybody. Our, our tour manager was completely non-threatening. That's why yeah. it was so baffling yeah. to me that the guy just wanted an easy mark. And there again, it was what he was wanting to develop was that, that fear that comes from picking an easy mark. And uh -huh. I couldn't stand. Uh -huh. I mean, my tour manager did not know he was being bullied, but I could not even stand the prospect that, that this would be happening. Mm. You know, you just, that's no way to treat a human being, mm. you know. So, mm. I mean... Uh, I I, had, I I mean, this is my whole life story. I could not sit there and let that happen. Mm -hmm, you know? mm -hmm. I mean, at some point I go, oh, you know, the guy's an idiot. Maybe he's drunk, whatever. Just enjoy your meal. But I, I just, I couldn't have it happen. Right, right. You know? So, and of course, that's a superhero in me. <laughs> and you're well equipped to handle such a situation if it came to it. Um, you know, if it came to blows. Um, so you started with karate, but you've obviously learned a whole lot more. Uh, for our audience's sake, let's just list some of the stuff you 
So I went from Shotokan Karate to, I think the next thing I did after that was wrestling, high school wrestling. And then I went from that to Japanese Jiu-Jitsu, this great guy, uh, Charlie Nelson, who had a place up on 72nd Street, uh, fought in Guadalcanal, was an old Marine, and it kind of really was probably one of taught something that now we call MMA, but that he, I mean, he didn't have many students because the stuff that he taught was just crazy. You couldn't Mm -hmm. really do it in a, in any traditional martial arts school at the time. It was no holds barred stuff. Pretty much, you know? Yeah. It was real, like a lot of wrist locks and a lot of top wrist locks and stuff like that. And then, and then I got, um, and and boxing, I think boxing right at, uh, concordant with, uh, uh, Shotokan Karate, then college, then wrestled at the end of college again, then went to Kempo Karate, and then so a roommate had come in and said, there's this thing Muay Thai. It's no, it's no defense. It's just all offense. And I go, this is... <laughs> and I went and tried it, and they put me up against a guy who was five foot two. I go, kill this young man. And the guy just really put a hurting on me. I go, okay, I'm sold. Muay Thai. This is, is Thai kickboxing. Yeah, so, yeah. I, so I did Thai boxing. Uh, Muay Thai is... My understanding of the difference is that Muay Thai uses the elbows. Mm. Elbows and knees. And mm. Thai boxing is more boxing and kicks. So. I see. And then I, I, it was a pretty quick jump from that to MMA. So and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Now Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu obsessively for the last five years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. so you've got a well-rounded portfolio there. Yes. Um, reading your book, Fight, which is partly about martial arts, mixed martial arts, some of the tributary streams of mixed martial arts, some of the characters, you know, characters in the fight game uh, who you've met. Yeah. Um, but it's also kind of an autobiography, so I know right. a few details. Right. So you were a kid who decided you weren't going to run from a fight, you weren't going to be afraid, you acquired a lot of skills, and you were lucky enough to be a pretty big guy, too. Right, right. And yeah, at my height, I was 265. That was the heaviest I've been. That was when you were on roids. Yes. <laughs> now, yes, correct. But now I'm sitting here, I'm about 222. Oh, meager Can, 222. Yeah. <laughs> so... 40, yeah, 43-pound 40, difference. <laughs> but you also have, a, I'm going to assume, an academic side. I mean, you ended up going to Stanford. Um, were you a pretty academic kid at the same time you yeah, were a physical mean, kid? Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, the whole time. I mean, I went to great schools. I mean, you know, uh, mother and father. My father is a professor, and my stepfather is a journalist, and my mother is uh, a, a sociologist, so, or a counselor, sociologist, so... It it was I mean it was never a question you know I never I never went to the kind of school that encouraged you know people not going to school um, so so it 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 never seemed strange at all uh, to me I mean I guess underlying that comment would be you know weren't you smart enough to know better and it's precisely because I was as smart as I was uh, or am that I I always look at the any scuffle I've gotten into as being an exercise in teaching somebody something worthwhile so that the next person that comes along doesn't have to deal with them, you know? So, uh, I mean, I'm old enough where it would be nice to say, you know, I know better, but it just, it happens. I mean, uh, and I'll give you a prime example. We played a show in Maine in 2008, and I was loading up uh, after the show, and these two guys are starting to fight with the people who have just seen us play. And they're actually being kind of amusing, so I'm amused. You know, I'm loading the stuff up and I'm listening. <laughs> the guys, he's funny. And then I hear somebody say, "You know, what the hell are you laughing at?" 
He didn't use the word hell, but uh, uh-huh. for your benefit, I'm. <laughs> no, you laughing at? And I'm just like, oh, he's starting with somebody else. And I kind of glance around to see who he's starting with, and and I kind of look at him, and I go, oh, you gotta be kidding. The guy goes, yeah, you. <laughs> like, out of all the people here, <laughs> your instincts are telling you that I'm the best person to do this with. That, that's a direct quote. And the guy, I mean, the vitriol continued and he threw a can at me and he spit at me and he's calling me names. And finally, I just said, look, I got to load this stuff up and you're making it hard for me to do that. So I'm going to tell you what, if you want to fight me, all you have to do is one thing. He goes, what's that? I go, say one more word to me and we'll be fighting. And he goes, well, come on. And some expletives after that. (laughs) And I go, okay. And I step up on the curb, and for the first time, I see him fear in his face. And then, for the first time, I actually got angry, because I wasn't really angry through this whole thing. I was more amused, like, okay, I got to do this, and I'll be back to loading up. Because I wanted him to have some sort of strength of conviction, you know. I mean, in other words, you were starting a fight with me because you thought I was small, you know, in New England, the curbs are huge because of the snow. It was like oh, a 12-inch, no. uh, 10-inch curb. Oh. So I step up on the curb, and the guy's like, Ugh! and I'm, oh, that's. Man. And then yeah. I was annoyed. So, because then you're a bully. Yeah. You know, before I thought you were just like courageous cat. <laughs> so, so of course that it it ended badly for him. So how oh. did it end for him? Oh, I knocked him out, and uh, he is. There was the second guy there, and then I turned to the second guy. And I, I mean, he, he didn't, he didn't attempt to defend himself. So it was swift and painless and he goes down and I turned to the other guy and he very cleverly having watched maybe many a nature show goes, what do you want? You want my drugs? Is that what you want now? The drugs. And he reaches into his pocket and he pulls two fistfuls of something out and he throws it on the ground. And everybody who had just come out from the show did what I did, which is to look down at what he threw down on the ground. And at that moment he ran off. When you say show, this is when you're performing with your band? Yes. Oxbow. Yeah, in Portland, Maine. Now, I have not been to an Oxbow concert, mm-hmm. but I have listened to you guys, yep. and I've watched a few videos. Yep. And I, as I understand it, um, guys challenging you mm-hmm. and often getting a lesson became sort of a ritual? No, it did, no? Be, it did become a ritual. What happened, and you know, to, to really make sense of this, you have to put, get your hands around a timeline. We played England... Our first show ever was in London. We played two shows, and and this was 1989 or 1990, um, and then. And it was a was it a punk crowd or was it? Um, um, I think I think still at that point. Head? I th- yeah, there was skinheads there, but I think it was still at this point probably healthily post-punk. You know, okay. people were branching out trying to do different stuff. And John Peel, the big famous DJ, was very much into us, and so it made it easy for us to go play. And there were no problems that that first uh, that first tour. But I, Brits have a, a tendency where you know, which is why all the famous artists who are British leave. <laughs> they have a tendency to um, to want to flatten the nail heads. You know, <laughs> you, you know, and yeah, yeah. you know, just because you're on stage doesn't mean you're better than me. And I, I, I'll agree, it doesn't mean I'm better than you. But I am on the stage, which means I'm doing something fundamentally different than what you're doing. You know, I, I'm producing, you're consuming. And, and these roles play themselves out in different ways. So the second time we went back, um, we put out two records. We only went back once. And then it had been five years. So all that, all that we had going back the second time 
was this kind of reputation for a certain kind of fearsomeness, you know. Your sound, you mean, or? Both the sound. Musically, it's super complex yeah. music and difficult, and, and it's not music you can tap your foot to. Mm-hmm. I mean, musicians get it right away, but the rest of the world typically has to be convinced. It, it's a, an acquired taste to a certain degree. But more, the live show, <clears throat> excuse me, the live show is more, um, it's just a lot to take in. Uh, a, a friend of ours happened to, see us one he wasn't a friend before he was just an american guy so there's an american band playing and he showed up at this place we played in arnhem the netherlands and he said uh you know some american bands come here and give them a little bit of america and you guys gave them way too much of america (laughs) so we went back five years later and the british instinct was to was to as they say try to take the piss out Mm -hmm. and from my point of view i look at it you're an enemy of art because you have lots of options. You, you could go to the bar if you're not happy or un- unhappy with what we're doing, or you could go to the front and demand a refund, you know. But the, the least advisable thing to do is to throw lit cigarettes at me. <laughs> so tell me about some of the art appreciation uh, lessons that you... I mean, I know, you know, there. my goal is to get from the beginning of the show to the end of the show, yeah. you know. Yeah. My goal is not to punch people in the face. No, but it has happened. I mean, it's, you Oh, guys it's have, happened several times. Just, <laughs> just several? <laughs> <laughs> I, if on the top of my head I would say uh, eight. All right, okay. You it's know. funny because it has worked its way into your legend uh, as a front man right. who will deal with hecklers and well because it's it's got a certain meretricious element to it i mean yeah, it's right you know, it's, it's, it, it, it quickens a pulse to hear right. about this kind of you know fistic- i mean it makes the show less of a show and more of an, a real experience but at the same time you know these are these are cir- circumstances under which any of us were we to be on the street would have reacted very similarly and and one in one instance the guy we played in bristol with robert plant strangely enough and um the guy wrote a blog entry about what happened to him that night. <laughs> and he was like, well, you know, started drinking, went to the show. And then he gets to that part in the story. He's, Oxbow comes out on stage. And he gets to that part of the story where he says, I don't really know what happened. <laughs> but, I, you know, I could fill in the blanks for him. What happened is I'm standing there singing. And there's some women who I don't know. Uh, rubbing my thighs in the middle of the show. <laughs> so I look down and it, you know, there's attractive women rubbing my thighs. I go, great. And I go back to singing. I don't know if he was attached to any of these women who were rubbing my thighs, but he was standing next to the women rubbing my thighs. And uh, uh, I, I look down at the women. I go back to singing, you know, all quiet on the Western Front. There's no problem here, nothing to see. And... Uh, but somehow he decided that what he was going to do was to participate at that point. And he decided to reach up and to grab and squeeze my testicles as hard as he could. <laughs> and that was, of course, in his blog that he published later. Where he was like, next thing I know, I was coming to in the, in the, in the food services tent. And, and did, you, uh, uh, did you lay your patented rear naked choke on him? I didn't. No, oh. because it was sudden, shocking, and, and it hurt. I didn't and have time just, to plan. You yeah. just lashed out. Yeah, I, I dropped a, a right cross on him, I believe. Wow. So, 
well, you know, maybe you're not as fearsome then as I imagine. This is what's so what, well, this is, no. This is what makes people. It's actually more disturbing. Yeah, that that, that it's well reasoned. Yeah, if it were not well reasoned, they would go, "Oh, he's just a lunatic." If it's well reasoned, it means it, there are a couple of steps to get from A to B, and they don't know what they were. So you know. Um, well, you know, I've, I've seen uh, some videos of you, and um, it led me to question what kind of person would challenge. A large, bemuscled man, screaming something primal, that's you, <laughs> yep. and clad only in sweat and uh, some tidy whities some BBs. Maybe. Maybe. Oh, Maybe the tidy whities So sometimes you're totally like full Monty. It, it could be completely nude. You never know. I oh, mean, the point right? is it's ill-advised. It's <laughs> <laughs> that's the point. Don't <laughs> screw with Mr. Zero. Leave me alone, you know? <laughs> but, but Eugene, in reading your stories, it does seem like there are people who are drawn to challenge you. You know, I had a buddy whose seduction tactic I, I walked in on, and it was really interesting because he wasn't the most aggressive guy in the world, but at one point he said to me, I had 65 sex partners last year. I was like, what? Sounds like bad odds to me. But, <laughs> hey, but you know, uh, and I, I finally got to see him in action, and he would just, <laughs> it was really weird. He would get super close to the person, you know, the person he's trying to, to seduce. Just physically, just super close, and at one point he created this kind of this aura of uh, of tension, as it will if you get close to another person, like close to another person, and people would either resolve the tension by stepping back, or they would, if they were, depending on personality, would say, "What are you doing?" <laughs> you know, or they would. Take option three, which was begin kissing him, and then boom. So it was a real interesting, and I think Oxbow in its kind of primal appeal recorded. It's super sophisticated and very different, but live there, there is the primal element. I don't, I don't know that people know what to do with it, that energy. They don't know should I stand here, should I sit, should I stand back, should I cross my arms, should I participate. Mm. You know, I, I'm getting messages, and I don't know how to resolve those messages. Mm. You know, it, it's happened less over the years when people have figured out that it's a stupid thing to do. And I don't want people to figure. I didn't want people to figure it out because it was stupid and dangerous. I wanted people to figure it out because it's much cooler to hear the music that we make than to, you know, you. I'm training six days a week. You can just walk and stand at the plate glass window and watch me train. You know, it's you don't have to pay twenty dollars to do that. But you the mean, music is special. You mean training at MMA? Yes. Um, well, let's hear or some, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, let's hear some of the music. Um, and uh, Eugene, I want you to pick. But I was thinking maybe we could play something early and something late. Mm -hmm. Like the earliest thing I have access to is uh, I think 1989, 1990, Fuck Fest. Yep. Your first album. Yeah. Want to pick something off that? Yeah. Why don't you pick, um, is Valley on there? Yes, it The is. Valley. The Valley.
the softer side of Oxbow. <laughs> there are a lot of soft sides <laughs> of Oxbow, which is why it's mystifying to me. But again, I mean, this this hasn't happened for a long time. Uh, but I do other side projects, and I was doing uh, with a project called Salminio with Jamie Stewart from Juju, and it's just two two of us. And we were playing a show in Brussels, uh, and this is recently now. We're talking 2013, February, I think. And uh, you know, some guy is, and it was very plaintive, very quiet type of music uh, for parts. And is standing in a relatively small club, maybe 60, 70 people there, and he's taunting me. And I get, clo- you know, I get close to the edge of the stage and I have the mic and I said you gotta stop you know I mean, in my mind this guy's an enemy of art I really just want you to stop I understand that you're not appreciating what's happening there's an outside there's a bar there's another place to be but in my mind now you're the worst one of the worst things you could be which is an enemy of art and he doesn't so I climb off the stage and I stand in front of him and I said if you don't stop I will stop you he goes, do what you got to do. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> uh, I actually slapped him. Uh, most people don't slap other people these days, but I slapped him. And uh, But, of course, you know, a slap from a trained martial artist is completely different. You know, I mean, if you've trained, so you know this, it comes... It comes all the way up this leg and the torque from the body. So this was a pancreas slap. Yeah. So he was. I mean, it was like Charlie Brown on the on the pitcher's mound. His hat flew all. His stuff was all over the place. And the first thing he said to me afterward was, "No violence." And afterward, I felt kind of kind of bad for the guy a little bit. And they said, "No, this guy comes. This is his thing." It's it's masochism. When, yeah? No, when Lydia Lunch came two weeks ago, he screwed up the show by screaming. Ah. And Lydia, she just turns the volume up, and eventually mm. she... But when it's quiet acoustic music, you don't have that luxury. So once again, I hope I sent him on his way. The next time, the next show he goes to, he doesn't do this, you know? I still got to wonder, though. I mean, do these people know that you are a trained uh, fighter and quite willing to engage? I would have to say some of them still don't. Really? I mean, he did it. And there's another guy who was filming. I go, this was the same guy who had seen Oxbow play maybe four months earlier. And I told him, you know, typically the rule is bits and pieces, you know. But he's whole, I see his phone, hold, put the phone down, put the phone. And this is when Oxbow played. And finally I had to say, we're not going to play unless you put that phone down. And so he finally put his phone down. So there he is again in this small club in Brussels filming. I say, put the phone away. He goes, say please. This is after I've already knocked the other guy out. So I kick his phone across the room, and he begins disrobing, and the bouncers finally make an appearance. And they say to him, um, it's in French, he says, what are you doing? I have some sort of functioning language skill. And he goes, but he say, responds to him in English. He goes, he wants to fight me, so I will fight him. And they just look at him, they're like, <laughs> come on. Come on, buddy. <laughs> You're about to get hurt. So so they, they ushered him out. And then afterward, uh, there was this great debate in the audience. And the people came up to me and they said, we think that some people said, the guys who are musicians go, my God, thank you. Thank you for doing this. 
you know, these guys have ruined our shows forever. They've been, you know, we live in Brussels. And some people came and said, we think that was typical macho behavior. And we thought it was really terrible. And I said, you know what? I understand how you feel. But if you were to have a party at your house, there is a line called enough. And you would find it very quickly, you know. What if I was dancing on your kitchen table? Well, I would have been. What if I was urinating and dancing on your kitchen table? There is a line we <laughs> could find very quickly, you know. Mm. And what do you do at that point? Some people, like there's that great story about Hitler and uh, the, the uh, Swiss village. or uh, And they were encouraging. They would. It was run by nuns, and they were encouraging any wounded soldier who came there. You could come there and get fixed up. And they could go back and fight, or they could stay. And uh, Hitler sent them a letter of thanks at one point during the war effort. And he said, I want to thank you for taking care of the German soldiers. But more importantly, I want to thank you for encouraging the other side not to fight. <laughs> you know, there's some people who there's never, they, they will never, they will, you know, you figure, oh, he's going to say enough, enough, enough. And it's it doesn't happen. So, I mean, I'm looking at this in, in very messianic terms. It's not just... Not just a jerk off who's got two fists who's you know wants to fight for fun. I know fighting somebody who doesn't know how to fight is not fun. Well, Eugene, do you think um, as long as we're getting philosophical about it, do you think getting knocked out or otherwise subdued, mm-hmm. you know, by a guy like you, mm-hmm. does it actually change these guys in a positive way? Well, I've been, knocked, or do they go I've... and avenge themselves on someone else? Well, you know, nobody comes out of the tube a bad guy, right? Mm. So um, I would have to say a lot of these behaviors are learned behaviors coming from the crappy end of life. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. Um, But I've been knocked out twice myself, and I'd say both those times taught me quite a bit. (laughs) Just twice? Just twice. Once, once, Once was accidental. I mean, it was... I mean, it... It was an accident. I mean, it was an honest accident. But we were we were goofing off, and uh, physically goofing off. And uh, and then the other was in an underground fight club that I'd gone to in San Francisco, and uh, that I used to uh, did for. Oh, and you tangled with someone who's a pretty good boxer. Oh yeah, he yeah. was great. Yeah, <laughs> and he, he he knocked me out. So it's taught me a lot of useful useful lessons. I mean, the thing is, you're you're, you're being beaten up by somebody who knows how to beat somebody up, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, and I'm pretty philosophical about it. There's a guy from Texas who, uh, same sort of thing, you know, goaded me into it and ends up beating him up. And I think he was trying to get some kind of press bump on it. He started a blog and a website and was talking about it. And he was saying, next those time those guys come to Texas, we're going to... And I said, you know, we're we're going to be in Texas. We're going to be in Texas March 17th. I'll tell you right where we're going to be, <laughs> you know. And I said, but you do realize that somebody stands a really good chance of getting seriously hurt. For what? You know, we had a problem. You and I had a problem. You know, you got knocked out. It happens. It could have been me, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah. and the fact of the matter that you were wrong <laughs> it has nothing to do with it at this point. So I was standing on the sidewalk in, in Austin, Texas. We were playing South by Southwest, and lo and behold, I see him and two of his bandmates walking down the street. And I'm standing in the middle of the sidewalk, so I can't back up. I can't move forward. I figure, and they just walked by me. It was like a wave sweeping over you. They walked by me, and it was almost like that didn't exist. And I was like, that's the exact correct response. Mm. We don't really know each other. Mm. We don't. So... Mm. 
evening ended well. <laughs> Hey, I feel bad that we uh, we breezed right through that excerpt uh, from an Oxbow tune from your uh, first album, Fuckfest, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. called The Valley. And we just made one quick comment and moved on. Let's talk a little bit about it. We, you were talking about the complexity of the music, for yeah. instance. Right. Break that piece down for us a little bit. The piece is, I mean, we were using is a music concrete. I mean, a lot of Nico Wenner, who was compositionally developed a lot of it. Initially, it started... And he's in the band. He, he's, the, he's the guitar player, and, and initially, he played guitar in Whipping Boy, which is my old uh, hardcore punk band. And I said, I want to do a solo record. And I had started recording it, and I don't... I used to play a little bit of violin, used to play a little bit of bass, a little bit of keyboards. And uh, I put down some percussion tracks, and I, I needed some help. So I said, Nico, here, I want you to... But it was great to be freed up from this democratic thing that we'd been doing with this music. I said, no, I, I need you to play this. I need you to play this. So... Uh, the, I had the lyrics and I described each of the songs and he proved himself to be super, strangely enough, I, n- I would not have been able to predict it, super amenable to, to working like this. And so we came up with six songs, a six song record, and um, some British critic described it best. <laughs> he described it as an unnamed disaster haunts this entire <laughs> record. And indeed, it was it was designed to be a suicide record. You know, I said, yeah, some guys leave suicide notes, you know. I'm going to do them one better. I'm going to leave a suicide record, you know. And any people, well, why did he do it? Why? You listen to the record. Is there a character that runs through the, all the pieces? Uh, a suicidal person? Um, for Oxbow, it's much more oblique. Uh-huh. Our characters don't have any names at all in any of the songs until the narcotic story where uh, I give him the name Frank. <laughs> Should we play something of that? Uh, you can. That was the first one produced by... Uh, Joe Ciccarelli, who the multi-Grammy winning uh, recorder of Miles Davis and Frank Zappa and Juice Newton and Morrissey and Jack White <laughs> and on and on. Frankly Frank? Um, or? Why don't you play, because uh, uh, I don't want to, people to think that all of our stuff is totally plangent. Yeah, so, exactly. So uh, yeah. play Down a Stair Backward. That okay. might be kind of a kick. Oh, Jesus. The opening there of Down a Stair Backward by Oxbow from their, I think, 2007? 2007. Album, uh, yeah. The Narcotic Story. Uh, with Nominated you- for, well, we went to the Grammys for it. 
Ciccarelli, really? the producer, was nominated for Best Producer of the Year that year, and he only produced three records that year, and we were one of the three, so we went to the Grammys, and uh, and uh, <laughs> it was great, because my sister is a performer as well, and I go, ah, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to call her from the Grammys, and she's going to be super excited, and I'll call, uh, call Maya, where where are you? She goes, I'm at the Grammys. I go, what? <laughs> where are you sitting and she goes i'm sitting there dave grohl from the foo fighters i'm like "Uh oh <laughs> she goes where are you sitting and i look around and i'm like i'm sitting next to yoko ono i said ah i think it's all about the seating plan here <laughs> so as luck would have it that night my sister maya asusena uh won uh, a grammy for she did a song with stephen marley called dance dance uh that year and when they said best producer of the year, and I'm like about to stand up and go to the stage with Chicarelli, they said, you know, Mick Ronson for Amy Winehouse. I was like, Uh-oh. I can't believe we lost. Here I am sitting next to Yoko Ono. <laughs> I think this is the first side that we we're going to lose was the side that I was sitting. I'm a big Yoko Ono fan, so it was nice. But, uh, you know, <laughs> so that that was 2007, and Narcotic Story was a record, mm. so it was nice. Do you like any genre labels that are attached to Oxbow? I, I, I don't feel comfortable with it because it's not, it's, they're not trying hard enough. I mean, we've gotten a lot of love from the heavy metal community, mm. Des- Decibel Magazine, Kerrang. But um, it's, it's a, a form factor, you know, I mean, because it's guitar, bass, drums, and screaming vocals sometimes. They feel like, okay, well, maybe it's heavy metal. But, mm. you know, I mean, then at one point, you know, I, they said, well, you're not really alternative, and you're, you're not punk, and I, you know, I don't have time to think. I mean, <laughs> right. maybe post-punk is a big umbrella, but at this point now, people sort of don't know what that means either. So, You were into punk when you were young. Oh, yeah, since 1977. Was that your favorite music when you were in your teens? Um, well, that and disco. Uh huh. Really, really. <laughs> I used to, I used to be a disco dance instructor. Man. Is that right? Yeah, I used to teach oh, uh, the hustle, the hustle. Oh, no. and the Spanish hustle. But oh, it was a no. great job for a sixteen-year-old to have. Cause, I guess so. You, know, you pick up on. Uh, and were you be muscled at that point? Uh, I was lifting weights. I started lifting weights when I was nine, but when I was sixteen and going to discos, I was. I mean, I started competing bodybuilding at 17, so I was probably about 165, 70, so, uh, but I was more in the tradition of Frank Zane. I was a, a lithesome 170. I wasn't a hulking 170. Oh, I've seen the pictures, Eugene. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah right. So you've seen them, right. On, so, uh, on right. Ozzy.com. That, that's right. We haven't begun to make our way through your resume, but you are, what's your editorial position there? Deputy editor. Deputy, that's what I thought, which means you can arrest people. Deputy dog. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> right. I got a big floppy hat. <laughs> but you are a, a regular contributor to Ozzy and Ozzy. Third, third person hired at Ozzy. Is that right? And you have. Um, Actually, third person hired and first person fired. fired? <laughs> yeah, I was a fight like of the first three weeks and then they uh, got rehired. You got rehired. <laughs> well, that's nice. Of course, this is not the first uh, publication you've worked for by any no. stretch of the imagination. Um uh, and people can find your writing on Ozzy.com, which a lot of good life stories there. I've learned mm-hmm. a lot about you oh, yeah, and okay. your, your adventures. That means you know too much. And escapades, <laughs> meeting Andy Warhol, yeah, right. working for Larry Flint, speaking of other magazines. Yeah, right. 
you did a stint at Hustler. Yes. Well, not so much at Hustler. I was writing for Hustler, but you, it would be more correct to say a stint at uh, LFP, okay. which is Larry Flint Publications. Larry Flint Publications. Yeah. So, um, no, I, I technically was employed only as a freelancer on their porn publications, but the he does a lot of non-porn titles as well, and I was editor-in-chief for over a year on one of his non-porn titles, which was Code Magazine which is a men's fashion magazine, and I have to give him a certain amount of credit. It was a men's fashion magazine for men of color, which was, I mean, they somebody sat down with the numbers and said, you know, 62% of GQ's readership are guys that are not white, you know, so maybe we could make a business out of this, and they sure enough did. And after about 14 months, it turned a profit, and they sold it immediately and then took the money and dumped it into his casino. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> so Condé Na- uh, Time Warner owns it, I believe. But uh, you did work for part of the, the, the Flint Empire. Uh, yeah, I, I've got several published articles in Hustler. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, and Hustler's Busty Beauties, Hustler, and uh, I did not Wait. contribute to... That was not the name of your article. No, they they had two pub- two separate publications, right? And that I had a magazine I published called Birth of Tragedy Magazine, and it was themed issues. And I came to their Lydia Lunch was in one of the issues. Oh, she, this was sort of an underground, underground, arts yeah, sort of. Was it a punk sort of? No, zine, no, it was or a punk. Was it? I mean, each issue had is fear, power, God, love, and I interviewed everybody from um, Anton Lavey from the Church of Satan to. The dude with the great uh, goatee. Yeah, exactly. He, oh my god! He was in the, I think, the uh, naturally the God issue. Uh, um, and, wow! And, uh, but I had Lawrence Ferlinghetti, Allen Ginsberg in wow, there. Amazing. Uh, I had Russ Meyer, the film director. So I had lots of different people in there. And um, the guys at Hustler had gotten a hold of it and wanted to buy an excerpt of my interview with Kit Natividad who was one of uh, Russ Meyer's big stars. I, I believe she's still alive. And um, and so I said, sure. And I said, hey, what about other stuff? Because they paid me on time. It was phenomenal. And they said, well, we have enough people writing on porn, so I don't want you to do that. But why don't you, this, these tough guy stories that you're telling, these are great. So that's how they start working for Hustler. So touch, tough guy stories such as what? Oh, I did an article on collections thugs, uh, knife fighting in Southeast Asia, um, uh, steroid abuse, <laughs> um, and uh, 10 worst places to live in America. Oh, really? I wonder if my hometown uh, ranked there. Well, you to ask me. Flint, Michigan. Uh, yeah. Funny you should mention that, man. There Actually, there were more places. I think Detroit was number nine or 10. Um, but then you got edged by uh, Indiana, Gary. Oh, but Indiana. we're on the top of the list now. Y- y- yeah, we're things have changed. Yeah, yeah, things have changed. I mean, New York was still on the list, and New York is no longer on that list. Yeah, yeah, New York is. Uh, sure, the sure. neighborhood I lived in was actually number one on the list at that at that year. I did. Oh, is that right? East Palo Alto was. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, that's right. East PA used yeah, to have. It's the murder capital of yeah. uh, America. But I don't know what that means. Well, it it means that per. Per capita, per per ten thousand people, uh-huh. more murders were committed than any other place in America. But uh, that's a uh, that's a much complicated story. That I think the the full story. Tech Crunch did a great piece on East Palo Alto and the history of it, and it was pretty super compelling. And mm, there's, a, there's a lot of coloration to what happened in that neighborhood. That you mean literally? Yeah, I mean going back to the fifties when Eichler. Uh, they attempted to ride Eichler, Joseph Eichler, the, who built the Eichler houses out of town because he wanted to sell 
to an Asian family who wanted to sell a house, and the people ganged together and said, you shall not. And this is like in the 60s. Liberal Palo Alto. Yeah, said, you're wow. not selling to, and he goes, you don't tell me I'll sell to whoever I want to sell to. Wow. So they let the Asian family buy the house, and like five families moved out. And so, yeah, and this is very Asian, so you can imagine. So it was this really kind of redline district, redlining, blockbusting, really weird stuff that was happening in terms of the politics of the neighborhood. So it was tailor-made to fail. Fortunately now, or weirdly now, like the TechCrunch piece says, with the Facebook campus there and, you know, all the kind of Facebook employees now buying houses there. Uh, there's a sad truism when people talk about gentrifying like is going on in San Francisco and the mission, the impossible rents. You know, it's just, it uncovers a truism and that's that poor people are going to get screwed. That's it. You know, that's the definition of that, being poor. You know, field, field mice get eaten by hawks. Mm-hmm. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's it. So mm-hmm. you know, I mean, rail against this as you might. Uh, the only way to fight against it is to it's like beat them and join them. If you are a homeowner, you will not lose. But if you're going to try to rent, you're going to get screwed. And that's just t- whether it's New York City now. Uh, we had some friends in town yesterday from living in Williamsburg. They go, we couldn't even afford to live in Williamsburg now. The Williamsburg I remember was, you know, nothing. It was a really terrible neighbor. Nobody wanted to live there. So now people are going out to Ridgewood, Queens. They're going that far, which is where I used to, uh, my bodybuilding gym was out there. Oh, yeah. Queens is like the last. Yeah. But people now, it's get, it's super, you know, artisanal coffees and it's getting <laughs> to be, but, yeah. you know, it's yeah. a wave of the future. Get out there, buy quick. Mm-hmm. You got to live somewhere. You mm-hmm. might as well make the investment own because otherwise you're going to get screwed. Well, well, Eugene, I was hoping to get you know some stories from your long uh, journalistic career, maybe from your Hustler days or your Larry Flint Publications days, but I can't let that mention of interviewing Anton uh, LaVey, yeah. the founder of the Church of Satan, yeah. pass. Yeah. So tell me about him. He's a great guy. I mean, I used to pass his... Uh, his the black church up in San Francisco all the time. His friend of mine at the time, she was like, "Oh, don't stop! It's don't stop!" And because he's got a little plaque in the ground, and she goes, "This is just bad juju." And I was like, "I don't know about that, <laughs> you know." And finally, I, I wrote him, and he said he hadn't done an interview in like, well, this is 1985 or 86, and he said he hadn't done an interview since uh, sometime in the 70s. He just stopped. He goes, "You know, you guys." You, you guys, meaning media, you only come around on Halloween, you know, you're, you're making me sound like an idiot. I don't have time. I don't have the patience. But he responded because I sent him a letter with a Stanford return address. And he was like, well, maybe this will be a classier journal. So he said, look, meet me at my house, not the black church, but meet me at my house. And he had this house, and I, I wish to God I could remember the neighborhood. And he, it, it was stage managed, you know. The house had this great overhang, and uh, the fog was coming in. It was like Dracula's castle, and they <laughs> bring me in. They say, you know, you gotta take your shoes off. I'm fine. I take my <laughs> shoes off, and I'm standing there talking to the people who brought me in. And one is a fairly heavy looking cat, like serious, like looks like a bodyguard to me, you know, trench coat, not smiling at all. And then the woman who brought me in, his secretary later, ended up being the mother of his last son, I think, or his only son. And because everybody was shoeless and there was shag carpet all over, he could walk up very quietly. So he kind of walked up very quietly behind me. And he was, Eugene? And I turn around and I think it was supposed to elicit, <laughs> you know, fear or something. And I go, ah, how are you, sir? And I shake his head, you know, this big meaty thing. And I, 
and uh and he just kind of goes okay yeah <laughs> no i got the i got the stage thing i love that you creep it up on me it was wonderful i just wasn't a you know i wasn't afraid i wasn't having real moral terror but i had some very specific questions i want to talk to him about and i want to talk about the nature of evil and he was in the the god issue so i figured you know it was perfect and eventually we went back and forth and back and about halfway through the interview he was like look I'm an atheist. <laughs> you know, I'm just trying to make the rent here, buddy. I don't know what the hell you're talking about with the evil thing. Evil's what doesn't feel good. I don't know. <laughs> and I go, oh, oh, okay. I got it. It was actually a very mild mannered sort of organization, wasn't it? I mean, maybe. I mean, who knows? You know, you, I mean, yeah, some people came in and. You know, Michael, so Lieutenant Michael Aquino, who got busted. There was a, the Presidio sex scandal, where purportedly there was some abuse of kids, and oh, then later it turns out well, he, that. that he was a Satanist. No, but he was. Sounds like the guy was railroaded somehow, and never happened. I mean, they put him on trial. It was it was a witch hunt, strangely enough. Um, but I mean, it's all online. I you people can read about it. But I, I think that uh, he broke off from. The Church of Satan, when he realized, ah, it's just guys just trying to make the rent. So mm. he he started his own thing mm. called the Temple of Set, and I don't know if they're still going or what the story is. But you know, when people have invisible friends, things get strange. Mm. I'm sorry, no matter mm. what, I don't care who we're talking about. So <laughs> let me get back to fighting for a minute. There's there's some great passages in your book, Fight, um, and uh, there's one that sort of sums up your relationship to this activity. It says, "So my reasons for wanting to fight are part Florence Nightingale." It's not unusual for me to be thanked by the beaten, if not right away, then later. I'm not a bully and only fight as a last recourse. And if it's some ass clown who's been pushing and pushing, well, he's thanking me for teaching him a lesson as gently as a hardhead like him is likely to notice. Part Ted Bundy, vast wellsprings of rage, sources of which go back to early life Freudian shit, having everything to do with every single existential and psychosexual issue you can ever imagine. Not to politicize my way around this, but I got a very um, complicated relationship with other human beings. And then finally, part Zorba the Greek. I like to fight. Yes. <laughs> the, the, uh, clearly, I wouldn't. I get up every morning at 6 o'clock to do this, <laughs> even if I don't get to bed until you mean 2. to train. To train. train. Yeah, yeah. Well, training is one thing, but actually just going in some unsanctioned uh, you know, mm. ruckus with some dude is a little different. And you like that too. Yeah, I, I, I like, I mean, the, we had, there was a fight, underground fight club in San Francisco, and that was pretty enjoyable. It's pretty exciting, you know, I mean. But that's, that's at least controlled to some extent. Yeah, yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're talking about uncontrolled street fights, I mean, again, in the past, you know, there was one I talked about before from 2007 in Maine, and then there was one the next night in Washington, D.C. with the guys from Texas, and then... Nothing until 2013 in Brussels. So it's oh, okay. a pretty. So I'm, I'm, I'm getting better. But mm. you, but you do say you like it. So, uh, and and I do want to talk about those other two parts too. Uh, not unusual to be thanked by the beaten. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a guy who, um, uh, when I was living in Palo Alto, uh, I had a, a party, and some biker guy, motorcycle biker guy, showed up at the party, and the police came and said, "Okay, it's one o'clock." You got to close it down, you guys. Hey, okay, we're fine. We're closing it down. And so I'm getting people out of the house. And I say to the biker, come on, you got to go. He's like, I'm not going anywhere. 
was like, no, man, you really, you got to get out of here. You got this time to go. And it just, you know, Escaladio, it just, it just built. And then finally I said to the guy, I'm going to give you three seconds to get out. And you got, you, and he's just standing, he's giving me the finger and I count one, two. And there's a big question about whether you count the actual three and then strike or one, two, and then three. You know, on three or after three. It didn't make a difference. Uh, after one would be even safer. Yeah, well, I wasn't concerned about safe. I wanted to give the guy a chance. So I said, so one, two, and I said, screw it. He's still going to be standing there on three. So boom, I knock him out. And as I knock him out, he falls down, hits his head on the wall. Right as the, pol- the door comes open, the police step through, and the police say, what happened? And I look at the cops, and I say, he fell, which is technically accurate mm-hmm. he fell mm. i mean otherwise he'd be standing up he <laughs> fell so so he's covered in blood and he's got this beer all over him and the cops did something pretty amazing and they arrested him immediately and put him in the police car and drove him away so i don't see this guy again and i'm doing some shopping in a safeway parking lot and i see him i go oh my god there's this guy and i'm, I'm trying to avoid him and i you know i go to the left he goes to the left and finally i figured out he's seen me so then I go, screw it. Okay, I'm not going to know evasive action needed. He's already seen me. So I just walk up to him, and he's like, hey, I, hey, man, I uh, I just want to, you know, I was out of line that night, hmm. you know, so hmm. I want to say, you know, I'm sorry and, and thank you for wow. setting me straight, wow. you know. Hmm. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I, I run, my family owns a vitamin warehouse. I know you're a bodybuilder. Anytime you want vitamins, you can come on by the warehouse. And I was like, cool, i come by the warehouse. I'm not going to go to the warehouse. <laughs> I'm not going to go to the warehouse as a guy who I'd be beaten up. But to answer your question, and the real interesting footnote is at that point, he had was arrested that night, and I told somebody, I said, hey, I saw that guy. And he's like, oh, Look at the newspaper today, and every single male, I think he had three brothers and his father, they had all been subsequently arrested for stuff, and the father had been arrested for some horrible sex crime and had been thrown in mm. jail. So it's like he, he was in the wrong, and but nobody comes out a bad guy. They just end up bad guys, and usually it's at, because of the product of environment. I don't know. So, um, Well, that's part one. Uh, Florence Nightingale. Yep. Uh, let's talk about the Ted Bundy. Vast wellsprings of rage, sources of which go back to early life Freudian shit, having everything to do with every single existential and psychosexual issue you can ever imagine. Yeah. When I talk about childhood being traumatic, I'm not talking about having a very specifically traumatic childhood like maybe this guy did. I'm talking about um, uh, the awful terribleness of being powerless. Mm. You know, and and I and I was very clear on this when I was a small child, and I remember thinking, you know what, you guys are taking advantage because I'm small. <laughs> However, I will not always be small. <laughs> so in the in the in the wash, at some point or another, you, you know, you're paying into a bank account that I'm going to pay you later out of. So uh, it, uh, I remember getting into an argument with my father. I must have been about three years old. You know. And we went to a wedding. I was a ring boy at a wedding. And uh, even then, I had a, a developed sense of design. And my father said, stand over there. I want to take a picture. He had a Polaroid, it was old-style accordion Polaroid cameras. And I go, cool. And so I go next to the column, and I lean on the column because I want to be like like the cool guy. Because I've seen magazines, right? Because I'm tied into media, even from this age, paying attention. So I'm leaning on the column. He goes, don't lean on the column. I know it makes a better photo. You know, at three. I go, why not? 
And he goes, because I'm telling you, it's not, even at three, I don't want to hear that answer. So I keep leaning on the column. He goes, get off the column. I go, why? He goes, because I'm telling you. I go, that's, no. He goes, am I going to knock it down? He goes, yeah, you're going to knock it down. Now you're just talking crazy. I'm three years, I'm not knocking the column down, you know? So he goes, I'm telling you, you know, you stand. So I go, okay, great. And so I stand off the column, take my arm off the column, no more cool guy stands, and I just stand there. <laughs> no smile, nothing. He goes, you're ruining the picture. I'm going, this is the picture you want. The bad one, take it, you know? And I, I, I thought it was demeaning for both of us, you know? I mean, it, he would not remember this at all, but this meaningless little skirmish of being powerless is terrible. And you, you remember know? that really, really well. Yeah, and there's a photograph of it still. Uh-huh. I me mean, just standing, deadpan, you know, uh-huh. dead face next yeah. to this column. Yeah. If he had just taken the photo, at least one, give me the benefit of, of one, the way I, you know, so we could A, B them, hold mm-hmm. them next to each other and see which one was better, mm. you know. I mean, uh, at one point somebody called, had a reference, a uh, job reference, and they called, they said, what management style works best with Eugene? And the person who gave me the good reference, they said, uh, I got the job, so it must have been. They, they called me to tell me, I laughed. I go, well, what did you say? And he said, well, I said, uh, creative. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got to be creative. I mean, that's, uh, and as a father, I've not duplicated any of the jackass mistakes of, of, of <laughs> my father, certainly. Um, or my stepfather, who was, you know, uh, who was my father from the time I was six to 18. Well, let, still. Let I'm it still be said, you have yeah. three girls. I have three daughters, yeah. So, so you don't have to deal with another male uh, opponent. Yeah, I don't have any sons, but it's been, I mean, I've, um, I mean, the times I've been a boss, I said, well, I, every lousy boss I've had, I don't want to do those things. And everything that I didn't like as a kid growing up, I didn't do it as an adult, you know. Um, and uh, and my friends who have nothing but boys, they say, they say, oh, you don't have boys, you don't know. Well, it's not too late for that. <laughs> and, and, and the reality of it is I would hope to, I'm not, I'm not incredibly autocratic, you mm-hmm. know. I mean, uh, this is now a fa- famous family story where my daughter's playing in the sandbox. She starts eating sand. And I go, what, what are you doing? She goes, I'm eating sand. I go, I don't do that. She keeps eating the sand. I go, you're going to get sick. And she said, AJ does it. <laughs> Some kid, you know. And I go, go ahead. <laughs> and so she eats like two or three teaspoons of the sand, and she's like trying to get me to stop. I go, how's it taste? Does it tastes pretty good. And this was at the age where I still had to wipe the bottom. She was young enough at that point. So she says, I need to use a potty. And she goes and she wipes her bottom. And I go to wipe her bottom. And the toilet bowl is full of sand and diarrhea. I go, kid, you've got a lot of diarrhea. Does it hurt? She goes, yeah, it hurts. I go, huh. And there's a lot of sand there, too. So why do you think that is? Well, because I ate that sand earlier. Eugene's tips for parents. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. A buddy of mine said, he said, I I never want to bullshit my kids. And I've largely, you know, I'm not not an autocrat. Mm. Um, do you think, though, that, you know, when you say all that psychological stuff, is that something you summon when you're having to go to, come to blows with somebody? Does that stuff come back? No, it depends. It depends. When I compete, there's something that I do uh, when I compete, and it's purely like 100% a mind thing. And 
you could have just you could have given me your memoir, and I know more from this one thing I do when I go to fight a guy from this than any than anything you could write your memoir. And the thing I do when I you know we start, and this is I'm talking about competitive training. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I do it. You can do it in a street fight as well. It works. But to uh, face palm somebody, you know, just put your hand over their face and push it just like that. And guys who have had difficult upbringings completely flip them out. <laughs> it will really flip them out. They, they don't, you know, because it's just at once, it doesn't hurt, but it's just really dismissive. And oh, yeah. And really. This is reminding me of John Jones's looking down on Daniel Cormier yep. at the face off. Yep. These are. Push they're, that button. Yep. They're micro yeah. measures. And you. Um, at one point, I remember I was uh, a friend in uh, a friend in high school. We were racing, and um, and I was, you know, I got a sunny disposition. You know, I'm, you see me, I'm a pretty affable guy. Yeah, this that was good. exactly the word I was going <laughs> to give you. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So, and he 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 gooses me. And it, you mean he 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 put his fingers in a cone and jammed them up my butt. You know. Which doesn't bother me. I wasn't having any kind of homosexual panic. I, I didn't care about no, that. No, but at, that's at a all. bit of a violation. It was like the face palm. Yeah. Thing. Well, I was beating him in the in the race, which is why he wanted to kind of get the uh-huh. edge. But I thought, I for a second, I th- it recalled for me the horrible powerlessness of youth. Mm. You know, like when a, a larger kid would get you and bully you and then make you punch your face or something mm-hmm, like this. Mm-hmm. And uh, and all of a sudden, our foot race became a wrestling match. <laughs> and I wasn't hitting him because technically it, we weren't fighting, but I, I felt super compelled to exert dominance mm-hmm. and to, to have it be understood that we are playing, but even in our playing, one of us is going to be mm. the one, you know. And so I, I wrestled him to the floor, and then just as quickly as it started, I stopped, and we kept running. Nothing was ever said about it again. But when you facepalm people, you're reducing them. You're dismissing them. You're taking them back to some awful moment of being. If that moment exists. If it exists. For them. And yeah. why, why do that exactly? Um, if I'm doing it in a competitive setting because I want the guy to do the ad- adrenaline dump. I want him off of his game. I want him to, right. not, I want him to make mistakes. I want him, you know. There's emotional content when I fight, not anger, you know. I want him angry because that anger doesn't last. I mean, this is why it's so comical to fight people who don't train because if you were to watch me fight a guy who doesn't train, you see, he's not really doing anything. Mm, Because I know- himself out. Yeah, I'm just going to wait 45 seconds. The average person Mm -hmm. can't swing their arms for 45 seconds. And how likely are you to be able to actually hurt me in 45 seconds? If I'm trained, no, you can't, you're not going to hurt me at 45. You're not going to knock me out. Unless you're training too, you're not going to, you know, so for 45 seconds I conduct. And then at the end of 45 seconds, as soon as I hear, I do a lot of listening too when I fight. As soon as I hear your breathing change, then it's, it's, it's done. I mean, most of these things are not lasting very long. So I do it. It's strategic when I do in a competition and a street fight, um, I don't do it much. I didn't do it much in a street fight. I slapped this guy in Brussels. But it's because um, I think I slapped him because uh, cause I don't want to hurt him. But you wanted to re- humiliate him a little bit. No, humiliation no? had nothing to do with it. I, I thought that this guy was an enemy of art. Mm. He was interfering with the show. He had been g- given ample opportunity. He was desiring to be part of the show. He wanted to be a footnote to this experience. And I just... 
you know, sometimes people should get what they want. Mm. Um, I mean, at that at that point in time, there was no option. That he had created a situation where there was no option. It's not like people in the audience came to me, the the people who the deniers who say you did this the wrong way. I mean, you should just gone back on stage and finish your show. That wasn't possible. It was impossible at that point mm. because the show had become about something mm. else. Mm. So as a performer, as the artist at that point, I the dynamic had to I had to recognize that the dynamic had changed and I had to change it back. If you haven't seen it, uh, Eugene, I think you would enjoy a documentary called Heckler. Oh, have you no, seen it? No, I have not. Uh, it came out maybe six, seven years ago. It's mostly about comedians. Okay. And their reaction to hecklers. Okay, all right. Which is, uh, in most cases, doesn't involve physical violence, but man, they get bent out of shape. Well, you know, I, I almost had to beat up a comedian. We did a not show. Not Joe Rogan. Not, no, Rogan's very tough. <laughs> I'd have to shoot Joe Rogan. No, 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 no. No, we played a show in L.A., um, and somehow it was music and comedians. And a comedian had to follow us. And so I understand the art. He's got he's to acknowledge what we just did, you know. He's like, all right, Oxbow, man, that was crazy. Okay, I'm okay. Yeah. I'm back. I'm right backstage. You know, I mean, I can see him. He's 10 feet from me. And he goes, this guy in his underwear, woo. That would be you. Yeah, so now I give him two. That's two. He says, what do you think happened to a guy like that to make a... I was like, man, I'm not the subject of your 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 freaking routine. At that point, I go, you know, I'm right here. <laughs> And he goes, oh my goodness, he's right there. Oh, he's gonna, he's he, he's gonna, he's man in his underwear. Who knows what's gonna happen? I go, that's a question you should ask yourself. <laughs> and eventually, you could see he got like, this is getting away from me. And then he went into his routine. That that's what you should do. Would you have attacked him? I, he wanted to be part of the show, man. He, he just leave me alone. Let me pack my stuff. Ooh, I would have gone. You're a little touchy. No, I, no, it's not touchy at all. It's like you know, I'm not coming on after him saying, "Man, that guy was a lousy comedian." You, oh. you see the shoes he was wearing. Yeah. Where to get shoes like that? You know? Yeah, but you that's want, what comedians do, Eugene. It's different if I'm sitting in the audience. Okay, you know, I'm another performer at that point. You know, there's an us and a them. And we're, we're us, the, uh, the entertainment for the mm. evening. So, I mean, I didn't have to. I wouldn't have beaten him up. I could have just gone out on stage and stood there. <laughs> and not said anything and ruined his routine. Just stood there and looked out at the audience. How long do you want this to go on? <laughs> you know? Let's talk about race and fighting. Uh-huh. There are few situations in America that are more like freighted with all kinds of twisted significance yep. than black guys yep. fighting white guys, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. There's a long and strange history of that. There is. And I, I, I was one of the first people to say, and I felt proud for this, that the reason why, one of the reasons why MMA was going to do so well because it was a, the only combat sport where white guys could could hold their own, <laughs> you know? And I mean, because boxing, that's done. It's already, you know, I mean... Well, wrestling, a lot of good white wrestlers, come on. Yeah, but that's why MMA has done well. Mm-hmm. Nobody likes wrestling, really. I mean, you just can't, you can't get people excited. Wrestling has tried everything. They've yeah. tried everything. They've tried changing the platform and... Uh, there was talk of dropping it from the Olympics. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. That's well, that, insane. That, that was mismanagement because the USA Wrestling uh-huh. kind of screwed that up. But there are problems. But you know, my daughter, my daughters all are all fighters and they all wrestle and they just went to the state championships and went back for the championship part in the evening. 
and they've got production values now. Yeah, they've got stage lighting, mm. and you know, it's it's pretty dramatic. It's pretty. Well, pretty well cool. MMA has proven that wrestling is a badass yeah. skill. Oh, of course, <laughs> it's incredible. But, but even still, I mean, you know, let, let's cut it as close as seven years ago when two fighters would go to the ground. You know, the audience is still seven years ago. People would still go, oh. Mm-hmm. I you know. know. Well, they still do. Not really. So when they go to the ground well, now, you it, got these idiot referees who stand them up. You yeah, know, that's never legit. who don't respect the grappling. That's never legit when they do that. Because usually somebody's on the ground, somebody's in trouble. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, there, in other words, there's more stalling on the feet mm-hmm. that they're not stopping mm-hmm. than is happening on the ground. So yeah. I'm, I, yeah, what's right. happening on the ground is just not that visible, right? And it's just not that palpable to people who want to see blood flow and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But it's unbelievable amounts of skill, energy, strength, yep. stamina, and people. I mean, sl- I mean, it's not as bad as it was seven years ago. Yeah, that, that much I know. Yeah. Well, so. I'm just standing up for wrestling here. But let's get back to the race thing. Yep. So, um, so yeah, I said that it would be the first combat sport that where white guys could achieve and do well, and I think that's largely <laughs> been proven, proven, proven to be the case. You and, know, and why it's popular partly, but it's very international. Too. No, well, yeah. it just, it just, it, I don't say. You know, at one point, there's always been this talk when most of the guys playing NBA basketball were people like uh, that that. The basketball basketball was being killed by the you know preponderance of black players, and that you know guys who like first of all let, let's not say that professional sports is not driven by degenerate gamblers because it is mm-hmm. <laughs> you know so the rest of us who like it but then there are guys who really like it like the gamblers, um, but I don't you know the the race issue in MMA I think uh, I think outside of the fact that it, it's kind of made it possible. For white cats who used to enjoy combat sports to enjoy it again because they can have their own heroes. They hero- can identify with their it, yeah. own heroes. And Chuck Liddell is a badass and, you know, is knocking out guys like Kevin Randleman. It's like, it's possible to, you know, we're not always going to lose this, this exchange. I, I, outside of that, I, I, I'm not, I'm not, you know, race exists for me in a weird place of uh, certain aspects of symbolism, you know. Sure. Uh, um, if you get stopped. Uh, shot during a traffic stop reaching for your wallet that's not symbolic at all it's actual mm, mm. you know um, but largely largely I think a lot of it is uh, um, r- the race discussion in America it's like talking about weather you know people don't really have anything better to talk about so ah, they talk, so they about, talk about a I lot mean, you know the thing is if you're going to keep me from there, there are dozens of reasons why you might not want me to work for you you know uh, is race one of them? I think probably, you know. But well, in, in the end, it can't matter. It can't matter to me the aggrieved party is race or the guy doesn't like my suit. Yeah. It can't make a difference to me. So, but but in engaging on the most primordial level when you fight people, mm-hmm. and when it happens to be you versus a white guy, for mm-hmm. instance. I'm betting that there are some people for whom that is a racially charged situation, even if it isn't for you. No, no, it's not for me, and I don't think it is for a lot of fighters, uh-huh. because I think the fighters, but... Uh, oh, I'm not talking MMA, I think... Uh, oh, the audience members, are, the, uh, I've seen, uh, audiences are despicable. <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen weird stuff happen, but, you know, something, and nobody's talked about this before, I've maybe made mention it uh, on it uh, uh, on my show, and nobody's going to talk about this. No, the fighter's not going to talk about it. No <laughs> responsible journalists are going to talk about it, but as a guy who started fighting in the streets, you know, who, who then got into martial arts, but I know when Anthony Rumble Johnson looks across the cage at Alexander Gustafson, I know at some point in his mind, training for the fight, going up to the fight, 
he said to himself, he's articulated this thought to himself, even if he's never spoken. He's like, there's no way this white guy's beating me. Mm-hmm. There's no, I, can't, I, I can't let that happen. Mm-hmm. So, but you know, there are lots, you know, there are lots of things. If you're digging down deep, you pull back up. I remember talking to this one woman, she was Canadian. She goes, don't you love working out? It's so peaceful and I'm at one with the universe. And I go, no, for me, it's a dark showcase of all these like weird kind of power relationships I've had in my life. And, and um, I do feel clean as a result of it, but what I've left behind is is dirty. It's not like, you know, she made training and lifting like yoga, and for me, it's more like therapy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so, uh, yeah, it's a cathartic, cathartic situation. So I think, you know, John Jones yeah, or uh, 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 Rumbles looking across was like, "There's no way I'm gonna let." Th- I, I just I cannot conceive of a scenario where I'm gonna let that happen. And, you know, Anthony Rumble Johnson is a Southern guy, so his understanding of race is a little bit different. Even if Gustafson's Swedish, so he's not like an American white guy. not an American white yeah. guy, but it's yeah. just, you know, you know, Anthony's got to go back to the hood. Um, I know I, what you're saying. I mean, I, I grew up in a racially charged environment. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Midwest is very strange about race. Yeah. So, so fights that went racial were, mm. you know, there was always this thing. And I was super aware when I was a kid that black kids would face ridicule right. if I beat them in a fight. Yeah. And yep. Yep. Eh, that may have given them a little extra ferocity and energy. But yeah. also, I could sense the pressure as well. There's a yeah. lot of pressure. Yeah. I, but, I mean, you know, there was, you know, there, there, there's countervailing pressure. I mean, the pressure against Gustafson was, you know, he's in his hometown. He's... You know, he's he's thinking about his high school teacher. Mm-hmm. He's, he's shown off for the girl, girls oh, yeah. that dumped him. I mean, oh, he's I got felt a, he's, bad for that guy. I felt terrible for yeah. him. He's he's got to make sure his mother has a seat. And I know. Families. No. The whole country was yeah. watching. And it was a, it was a terrible loss too. If yeah. it had gone on fight happened in the fifth round, they go, oh well, he had a value. No, he was just schooled. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, if it so, had gone longer, he might have had a real chance too. Well, yeah, yeah. If, you know, <laughs> but but largely, I mean, you know, sports competitive sports tends to be. You know, outside of that guy, who's that guy, Riley, who <laughs> had the Country Western concert. I mean, because of the success of black athletes, it's tended to be one of the more healthily integrated <laughs> endeavors in American life, right? Mm-hmm. It seems to me to be the case. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> if you're playing peewee football, you're not, you don't have to go to, uh, you know, a, a, you don't have to be bused to a school because you're playing against other kids from other classes, caste, races. So, But you said it. You know, people still identify sometimes along racial lines. I think less so in MMA. I see a lot of white guys who just love people like, you know, John Jones or Anderson Silva. Yeah, some guy, uh, some guy in the show said this to me. But it's no longer the great white hope thing happening so no. much. No, and and I, and, I, nice. and I and I tried to I tried to some guy said, oh, you're just supporting this guy because he's black. I said, hey, let, let me ask you a question. You know, the, he was Asian. I go, do you feel any special way when you see a Toyota drive down the street? <laughs> no, you don't, right? It's just a car, right? right? right yeah. <laughs> it's the same thing. It's not like I'm looking at what a fine young black man John Jones is. I'm not thinking that. He's just a great fighter. You yeah, know? yeah. So He's um, just kind of a genius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. R- really, I mean, people, people who are spending their time now hating him, in 10 years, we'll think, oh, my God, I wish I'd paid attention. He does you know? seem like a jerk, but he, uh, like the, the Cormier thing, you know, yeah, the face-off. Yeah, right? you know, but, uh, you know, I mean. But he's obviously super talented. He he is so much less of a jerk than I would have been at 27. Mm-hmm. If I was a world <laughs> champion at 27, he 
he would seem like Mr. Rogers compared <laughs> to how I would have been. <laughs> it's like Muhammad Ali would have had nothing on me. <laughs> yeah, I'm merciless. Well, you thank know? God that never happened. <laughs> thank God. That's probably one of the reasons, you know, my mom would get embarrassed. She'd see me outside with the kids in the neighborhood in Brooklyn, and she would say, you know, you were kind of hard on him. Go hard on him. He's an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> she's, she's like, you know, you can't be calling people idiots because you're smarter. I go, what, 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 what? He was wrong and he's an idiot and he should know it, you know? So I, uh, it took me a while to, uh, it took me 20 years in California to kind of relax. And even then I still can't, like a coworker said to me, said something to me and it was just like so wrong. And I, apparently I didn't conceal it. She goes, that was a stupid question, huh? And I was like, well, she goes, no, nah, I can see it on your face. I'm sorry. You just explain it to me the again. The New Yorker in <laughs> So I'm not expressing it, but I, I need to work on the poker face. So. But but you came out here from Brooklyn, Yeah. went to Stanford, yeah. and you stayed. Yeah, music kept me. Music. I was going to say, what kept you? Because we're talking about opposite cultures. Yeah, no, I hated it. I, you know, California under Reagan... You know, which is what it, where it was in 1980. Mm-hmm. I, that was my first election to vote for. I voted for John Anderson. And he lost to Reagan, and it was just a terrible time. Stanford mm. was terribly conservative. It was, yeah. At the same time, what was happening with music was really cool and exciting. So Stanford became kind of like my job. Uh-huh. And then as soon as I could finish my homework and get out of there, I would go to shows in San Francisco, San Jose, L.A., um, and you know, music is how I, my parents couldn't pay for Stanford, so I had to pay for it myself. So, and I won a couple of scholarships, uh, prior to, cause of being a smart guy. <laughs> and then, um, and then I had jobs and the band was bringing in money. And then I took out $10,000 worth of loans at the last year. Thanks to Reagan. He said, uh, if you're going to be in school here. He's, well, it was all across America. He goes, if you're going to get federal student loans, you got to do something for us, which is we're not giving federal student loans to anybody who doesn't register for the draft. And I was not anti-military. I would have gladly registered. You know, I, the idea of being a soldier was like, oh, yeah, I would have been okay with that. But I just don't like, you know, it was a great line from Deadwood. He goes, Yankton is muscle, and I don't like muscle. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, oh, now, now I have to do it? Well, you know what? I'm not. You know, I'm so I lost a lot all this money. So that ten thousand dollars came all the last year. So I actually kind of made it, you know, cobbled together from the money from shows and selling T-shirts. We put out records, and then uh, my jobs I could pay for Stanford, but the last year got tough. So we haven't talked about uh, your acting career. <laughs> yeah, you were in um, what some people called the worst movie of all time, or at very least the worst movie of nineteen eighty-seven. Okay. Yeah, it's hallucinatorily bad, and I still have the script around this somewhere. This is Leonard Part 6. Leonard Part 6, Bill Cosby's Len- Leonard Part 6. How did Leonard- you end up in this movie, which was some sort of like spy satire? Yeah, it was supposed to be like kind of a James Bond-esque take. Uh-huh. The, f- the first five missions were so super secret that the, the, you can't hear about them. That's why the movie is called Leonard Part 6. Um, strangely enough, there was an actor guy who I knew in San Francisco. He had been in a James Bond movie. And he had come, we, Whipping Boy, my old punk rock band, had played this, one of the strangest shows we ever played. It was at the Hilton Hotel on Van Ness. The guy who played us, he paid us $1,000 to play an hour, which was big money in the punk rock days for a band that didn't have a huge audience. And he had a nervous breakdown that night and was institutionalized post facto. They caught him running through the hall. He had spray painted his body silver because the aliens were coming. And they 
I mean, grabbed them, straight jacket, mental institution. And then the last time I saw him, he was working at a bookstore. So he, but I, I don't know where he got the money, whatever. He paid us, and one of the few people in the audience that night um, was this guy, this actor, and he said, you know, you should send a photo to my agent. And I sent the photo, I had a roommate snap off a photo, um, and I sent the photo in on on Sunday, and I got a call on Tuesday, and had an audition on Thursday, and a call back on Friday, another call back on Saturday, and so before seven days had elapsed, I had gotten the job. Hmm. And it was, uh, I was a guard for Medusa, the woman who was trying to take over the world with her vegetarian army, and I was one of the vegetarians. <laughs> so I filmed three weeks on it, got my, my SAG, uh, Screen Actors Guild card, and made $2,000 a week on it, which I thought, oh, it's good money for however old I was at the time. And the royalties started coming in, and I made probably over $100,000 in royalties for the worst movie. If it had been just mediocre... For a total flop. Yeah. If Holy it had been, crap. Yeah, that's when I realized if you knew how much money your favorite stars make, you couldn't enjoy their movies because you'd be sitting there the whole time going, God... <laughs> God, the guy, and that's in perpetuity. I do that, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Well, you'll do it more. It's in perpetuity. I still get checks for Lamp Parts. That's amazing. Still. That's incredible. Mm. Um, I don't get the the TV stuff I did. I did a a couple of TV shows. uh, You did a show in Germany? I had a TV show. I had my own TV show in Germany. What was that? The Eugene Robinson Show. But what was it? It was just an interview show, like a a panel show. Okay. um, In uh, English? Um, English with subtitles. I speak a little German, but not enough to conduct a show. And, and who did you interview? Uh, musicians, mostly. Oh, okay. People, uh, artists. And um, it was on Viva TV, which is European, like MTV, mm-hmm. or German MTV, hmm. a TV show called Wawa. So it was uh, it was pretty cool. I mean, the best part, my favorite part was leaving Berlin and going through the airport, airport and the old guy, uh, security guy, is like looking at me, goes, I know you. (laughs) (laughs) That's only like, that was like one of the first times I was recognized in public for something I had done. The other time was a couple of months ago when I was walking down the street in Mountain View. Some guys ran out of a coffee shop. It was like, knock it off! (laughs) I was like, oh man. First time that's ever happened. Yeah, so. We should say that Knuckle Up is the name of your, you know, sort of video uh, yep. one-man show, often recorded in your car. In the car, on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, All pretty right. low production values. Hey, hey low production. <laughs> I try to tell people it doesn't, this is the phone I recorded on. So, yeah, low production values, but it gets it done. I, initially, Scott Kelly was the first one who plays guitar in Neurosis. Who said, you know, I'm doing this combat music radio thing with uh, Phil Anselmo, who plays, used to be in a band, Pantera, and some other guys, and we'd like you to be one of the DJs, you know, just talk, because I would be on his show every now and then. So I started recording it there, and then we moved to video, and then it just flopped under its own weight, and uh, the guys from Bloody Elbow said, hey, would you... And I said, sure. And uh, it turns out they didn't expect it, they were shocked, and... You are the most <laughs> regular, dedicated, punctual. <laughs> I don't even have to think about it. It shows up at one piece. I, even if I'm on tour, I do it, you know, so I've done shows from Lyon, from Copenhagen. I've, if I'm on tour, I still do the show. So You have no trouble monologuing. No. Not any whatsoever. 
for three hours. <laughs> yeah, well, Dave Chappelle did a, did a he broke the Guinness Book of World Records for did a stand up comedy routine for six hours, and apparently to people who it was funny all the way through. That's crazy. Yeah, man. That yeah, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's unbelievable. Um, I have the feeling we're going to uh, have to end this interview without having more than scratched the surface of all yep. the things you've done. But one other thing I wanted to mention, when we were exchanging email about doing this interview, you ruled out one uh, time slot because you were doing some tango dancing. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. another passion? Yeah, I'm obsessed with it. Uh, when did that start? Um, I've wanted to do it my whole life. Um, I, I mean, that was one of the first things I actually went to my mother and said, probably before I said I wanted to take karate, so I want to dance. And, and tango specifically, Argentine no, tango? No, 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 tango. So at, at, Disco. At, at ten, no, at 10 years old, I just wanted to dance, and I think she just kind of laughed at me and didn't take me seriously. Um, and I taught myself to dance and then became the disco dance instructor. Um, but I'd watched enough tango and was watching it, and it just seemed to me slightly different from, and of course, ballroom dancing, you know, nobody's actively writing music for waltzes. But you can listen to tango music, and it's a whole universe opens out in front of you. And I, you know, I mean, most people's exposure to tango, serious tango, was you know, Last Tango in Paris, the Bertolucci movie, um, which was which was a great piece of advertisement for it because these people were super old in it. You know, like old people doing this weird dance. But it is. I've wanted to do it, and wanted to do it, and wanted to do it, and then um, finally time came up you know i got i got divorced and i had some time and it was like man now's the time it's perfect you know and it's i have to tell you it is the hardest thing i've ever done <laughs> i've had i mean it's harder than brazilian jiu-jitsu it's really hard you know i mean i've been doing it over a year now and i mean even you know standing i'm still practicing standing i mean i can i can you know i can get a good turn on the floor but the finer micro points of it incredibly difficult and and it's a big psychological thing too the guy who teaches us he said he's a fighter as well he used to do a, a black belt in aikido and actually had done you know and he goes you have to change your view of the world because fighters and, and he showed me some video. Look at this is you walking in today, you know. Like he said, you, you walk like a fighter, which I was not aware of the fact that I walk like a fighter. He goes, your body is, it's a defensive posture. Uh. And he goes, well, you know, tango. It's a spirit. It's about being open to the world. So you have to, you know. And I go, I would never stand this way. It just feels way too exposed to me. To yeah, stand. you're spreading your arms. I'm spreading my arms. Your... I'm standing yeah. very straight up with my my chest out. It feels like. You know, I'm, I don't slouch when I stand, but, you know, I, my shoulders sit, you know. <laughs> I, uh, I did something for, on German TV. They were said, fight tips. And I said, you know, I never, unless I'm feeling super comfortable, I'm not standing flush with other human beings. I'm always with my body slightly tilted to the back, you know, with my dominant hand in the back. And none of, you have to unlearn all that stuff for tango. You can't. You just have to be open and therefore trusting uh-huh so um it's it's i'm now good enough where it gives me pleasure to do and i'm sure maybe it looks okay but i still i still probably have another about another year before i look like anything really you know i did a whole show about it and i became kind of fascinated i haven't taken the the plunge yet but you one of these start. days yeah you should start yes yeah. you know I mean, I've done special seminars on it, too. And then, like, you know, it's not all dancing with a partner. He said, okay, you know, you see those poles on the wall? And he was heavy poles, about five feet long. Grab it. Yep. 
Okay, put it across your 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 the arm that would hold your partner. You put the the pole through your arm and hold it, and then the other part goes on the arm that you use to hold the hand. And you forgot ah, I could do this for days, <laughs> and then after about thirty seconds, it's sweat pouring from my head, you know. And I've got to do that end walk. Yeah, I mean they're micro. It's really difficult, but it's you know uh, from music, musically, lyrically, politically, you know, based on becoming what was happening in Argentina at the time. Mm -hmm. It's just a phenomenal way to spend time. Mm. So I'd like to do it more. Unfortunately, I can match once a week or sometimes twice a week. So, but it's, uh, <laughs> well, Eugene, it's been really awesome talking to you. I really enjoyed it. And, um, I want to go out with, uh, one last piece of music from your band Oxbow. Uh, you have suggested that we play a piece that you did with Marianne Faithful, right? Yes. Uh, this is in Asylum. And it features Marianne Faithful and your band. We haven't named all the band members either. Uh, Nico Winner is on guitar. Dan Adams is on bass. And Greg Davis is on drums on this tune. And the record was we went to Dublin, Ireland, to record it at U2's studio, strangely enough, Windmill Lane. And um, she, this is way before she had done her stuff with Metallica and so on. And... Uh, it was uh, interesting. Steve Albini actually produced uh, the guy who produced the last Nirvana record. He's the one who produced uh, this record for us. So, well, we're going to close with that. But uh, also, um, wanted to mention that your uh, your book Fight is dedicated to all my enemies, every single one of them. Yeah. Who are they? No, you know what? You know what? I would name them if I hadn't got the. In other words, the ones I haven't gotten back, I can't name them because I'm laying awake. <laughs> There's one guy who I wrote about in in that series that the, they tried to kill me series for Ozzy, who I'm laying in wait for this guy. <laughs> I don't care. I'll say it on the air. And uh, and I not for not to any. I just want to talk to him. Just want to talk to him. <laughs> you know, I just want to say, hey, what what happened? What, what is the backstory? Uh, to yeah, right. what what is the story though? I don't know it. Um, well, there's a whole. Se I do a whole series on Ozzy called. Uh, I haven't read that one. It's called. Uh, they tried to uh, the, the first time they tried to kill me, the second time they tried to kill me. It's a whole series. Uh, I think thankfully we don't go too far beyond the fifth time they tried to kill me. But it was these were times when people actually tried to kill me. It was you know. By what means? Uh, the first time they tried to beat me to death. I don't know. You know Who's they? Some guys. I was five years old. I oh, know. you're talking yeah. way back when yeah. you were a kid. Yeah, and the second time they tried to kill me, I was 12, you know, and there were a couple of other occasions. Oh, <laughs> you know? this was like there was an incident where a dude strapped you, used a belt, right? He strapped you to like a telephone pole or yeah, something like yeah. that? Yeah, it wasn't a belt. It a was bully. A, it was a rope. A yeah, rope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that guy. I get oh, that guy wow. Back. So those old bully incidents. <laughs> I found that guy. <laughs> you found him? Oh, I found him. And yeah. what did you do? Nothing. I know where he is. I haven't been back there yet. So I have. Uh, <laughs> you know, I've, I've thought about doing the same thing, going back to my hometown mm -hmm. and just trying to find some of the guys yep. Yep. and just say, they're probably a mess now. They're probably messed up dudes. Yep. I mean, I don't want to gloat. I don't want to get revenge. I just want to. Yep. See what it would be like to actually meet them. Yep, same, yeah. same. I mean, this guy this guy was afraid of me back then. Make no mistake, that's why I was tied to the pole. But, um, you know, I, uh, I I want to give him the benefit of, of my mercy, <laughs> you know. You mean you want to forgive him? Yeah, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to give him the benefit of my mercy. 
Uh-huh. Whatever that means. What does that mean? <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, it's one of those things where, what is that great line from Hamlet? You know, if they but blench, I know my course, you know. I just, or like the Buddhists say, you know, Dharma gates are endless. I would like to share that space in this moment now with you 35 years later, 40 years later, just to let it happen. Hmm. I mean, it could happen. I just say, nice to see you again, walk away. But, um... Yeah, so many years later. You're how old now? I'm 52. You know, I, I interviewed some guy on my show, you know, a guy who had given me a heart. And this was not any of the tried to kill me things. But it was, uh, we had left on unpleasant terms. And, but we're talking about unpleasant terms back in 1983. And I interviewed the guy on the show and, and I had him specifically on the show because I wanted to say, hey, you know, by the way, you remember that thing? Because I'm a grudge holder, you know? So, and he doesn't even remember. It, well, no, I didn't <laughs> do it because I knew on the phone it would be too easy for him to, to do something dangerous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I said, you know, next time you're out or we're back in Michigan, the guy's from Michigan, we should do this again. I'll have you on the show again. And he was like, okay, we'll, we'll do it again. So I was like, okay, good. And so then when I'm face-to-face, then we could talk about it. And if, if you but blench, I know my course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I mean, again, I'm not, I, I would rather have this be an uncomfortable disca- discussion. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm really going for, the uncomfortable discussion. But there is, uh, you know, most people can't make it through uncomfortable discussions. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so, especially since I'm not, I'm not really willing to extend forgiveness. That's not what I'm talking. I, I just kind of want to know why it happened. You know, I couldn't. What you, but stuff that was committed by kids. Yeah, well, he was a teenager. Okay. You know, I was twelve. He was maybe about fifteen. Right. So yeah, I mean, this is statute of limitations, way done, out, gone. But uh, I mean, we've all done bad things, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Oh well, yeah, I've, I've, with the exception of one of the bad things I've, I've I did, I, I, all my accounts are leveled, so I don't, mm. you know. Um, the internet has made it possible to do this, you know. Mm. It's it, on the one hand, it's destroyed nostalgia. On the other mm-hmm. hand, it's allowed you to level accounts, <laughs> you know. I mean, said, hey, buddy, remember that time, <laughs> you know? But everybody else, you know, I mean, Chris Leahy, a guy I beat up in high school, I beat him up because he need me in the groin, <laughs> you know. So I don't feel like I have to level an account there. He need me in the groin, I beat him up. That's old. We can we can comfortably forget that. But these other things were un, unresolved, sort of insoluble. And uh, it would be nice to kind of just be there in that space. You Interesting. Know? So, I mean, that's what Mike Tyson, at one point, Mike Tyson said, you know, I realize that, man, I'm not that 12-year-old kid again. It took him until he was a grown man to realize that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I yeah. mean, these are long-lasting traumas. Again, yeah. the powerlessness of youth is terrible, you know? Well, certainly Mike Tyson with his pigeon story. Right, the pigeon story. I mean, he's come out recently to also to talk about being sexually abused. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. You know, no. Yeah. I mean, again, nobody comes out the pipe, a bad guy. But you know, that's what you call life. <laughs> Things happen. Well, Eugene, let's end with some music, again, from Oxbow. This is what we promised. It is in Asylum. Yes. And thank you so much. Yeah, hey, th- and there's also, it should be noted that this is a cover it's a cover of the Willie Dixon tune, Insane Asylum. Did you ever get a chance to see Screaming Jay Hawkins? Live? No. Oh. No, I would have been great. The last guy who, like, giant that I saw live was Roy Orbison. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, pretty soon before he died, and that was fantastic. 
I saw Screaming Jay, but it's funny. Some of your screaming reminds me of his screaming, and he was a boxer. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you, sir. Thanks for having me, though. Eugene Robinson is the deputy editor of Ozzy.com, and he's the video host of Knuckle Up at BloodyElbow.com. You can learn more about his band Oxbow at their website, TheOxbow.com. Eugene's books include Pattern Astra, A Long Slow Screw, and of course, Fight. Everything you ever want to know about asking, but we're afraid to get your asking for asking. I'm Robert Polly, and this has been the 7th Avenue Project, where each week I have to remind myself... My goal is to get from the beginning of the show to the end of the show. My goal is not to punch people in the face. You can listen to us online at 7thAvenueProject.com. So long until next week. I said, please, come back to me, darling. What in the world are you doing here? my old man raised up his head. Tears were streaming down